welcome to The Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, the Walkley Award-winning journalist, social commentator, author, and recently announced political candidate, Shane Cairo has just released The Mother, a gripping domestic thriller with a moral dilemma at its core. Cairo will be in discussion with Readings' programming manager, Christine Gordon. Enjoy. Hello, everybody that's listening. My name is Christine Gordon. I'm the Programming Manager of Readings, and I am delighted to welcome one of my heroes to this podcast, to this discussion, the great and the one and only, it seems to me, Jane Caro. You may know her because she's running for the Senate. You may know her because you've seen her on TV. You may know her because you've listened to her podcast. You've read her books. You have thought to yourself, this is an outspoken, loudmouth woman. She writes for children. She writes for our papers and a very fierce and independent feminist. Welcome to the Readings Podcast, Jane. Oh, thank you, Christine. I'm delighted to be here. We're here to talk about your first novel for adults, The Mother. Give me a bit of a reason why you felt like that now was the time to move away from nonfiction and writing for middle-aged readers. Why was this book so important now? It wasn't so much that I thought, oh, this is an important book to write now, as that the idea hit me between the eyes or in the solar plexus more like. And it insisted that I write it. And I guess that probably has something to do with now and why this should suddenly have become the idea that I needed to pursue. And I knew as soon as I had the idea that it had to be a fiction book. And I knew obviously given the darkness of what I was writing about that it obviously had to be adult fiction. But I don't actually, as a writer, think in genres. I just think about the story I want to tell. I think it's the publishing industry that thinks in genres. Writers think, is a story I want to tell? And then publishers go, ah, that story fits into this genre or that genre or the other genre. You know, maybe there are writers who think about genre, but I'm not one of them. Like I didn't write my young adult books as young adult. I wrote what I wanted to write. I mean, obviously, when I wrote a memoir, I knew it was a memoir, but I wrote what I wanted to write. That's not kind of the thinking process that I go through. It's more of a, here's an idea. It has to be fiction. Obviously, it's for adults. And I also don't write for a particular audience. So even with Accidental Feminist, which obviously is the life story of women, of my generation of women, women over 55, clearly that would appeal to women over 55. But I always hope that readers are a bit more adventurous than that and that they will read books outside of their own experience. I do get annoyed and it does happen quite a lot that men will come with a book for me to sign and to signing and they'll say it's for my wife, my mother, my daughter. And I often say to them, you could read it too. And they look at me, oh, oh, yes, 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 oh, I could. <laughs> yeah, you could. It's Okay. Because I really think one of the problems we have in this society is that women will read books by men, watch movies about men, you know, TV series that are dominated by male characters, but men still are very resistant and that holds us all back. It holds us all back in terms of our ability to be creative and get our experience of life told. 
Let's talk about this particular novel. For our listeners, let's give a little, perhaps, I don't know, an elevator pitch about what it's about, and then we can talk a little about why it's so important that we actually get men to read something like this. What would you say? Would you say this is based on the wonderful Marion Duffy, uh, an older woman that gets increasingly perplexed by a relationship and then angry? Or what would you say? How, mm. how would you go? That sums it up pretty well, but I probably would say this is about a mother and a grandmother, Miriam Duffy, who has a comfortable life where everything's going pretty well. In fact, she's a bit smug and privileged perhaps at the beginning of the novel. And then she loses her husband in the most brutal way possible and that, you know, he has a massive aneurysm and is dead in a heartbeat. She's left raw and grief-stricken. And then she slowly begins to realise that her youngest daughter's marriage, which had looked so perfect and so wonderful isn't and that in fact it's taking her daughter her grandchildren and of course eventually her into some of the darkest places imaginable and then facing her the mother alone with a dilemma that no one should ever have to face but that many people I suspect do. This is a a very clever book because even though it's been put into the crime genre, this is actually more of a social commentary type of book. What you've done is you've put yourself, this character, Miriam Duffy, you've put her in what it must feel like to be part of a situation that is out of your control. So what we're talking about here is that Her daughter is in this coercive, damaging relationship. She is witness to it and then privy to it and then decides to take action. We don't want to give too much away, but I thought it was so clever, Jane, the way that you referenced some of the crimes that have been happening against women have been happening since the beginning of time. And you made it so that everyone is involved in this. In the end, no one is safe from this type of relationship you did that on purpose I've read so many of your works I know you did this on purpose (laughs) tell me a little bit about writing that well I knew right from the beginning that this had to be set in a middle class milieu it had to be amongst privileged and successful people who think that they're safe because I think one of the illusions of privilege is that we are safe other people are at risk we're safe now partly this is this is me. I'm a privileged white person. So this is what I know. So I do believe in the adage, write what you know. And I knew that if I tried to write from a different perspective, I would be appropriating experiences I haven't had. I felt ill at ease doing that. Mm. I actually felt very comfortable writing about this particular way of living in our society right now. And I also knew that I wanted my central character to grow up, that you can afford all the fancy protective software and cameras and perimeter control. Still doesn't help you out. Mm. I mean, it's that much worse for those who can't afford any of those things. But even so, danger is a real presence and it can be in anyone's life. It can be random chance like Pete having the aneurysm and it can also be that your daughter like so many women, makes a lousy decision because she has been manipulated into believing that someone is different from who he actually is. And in a way, her parents' healthy, strong marriage predisposed her to thinking that 
good marriages were easy. She could find this fabulous bloke and it would all go swimmingly. As long as we teach little girls that marriage is the be all and end all, as long as we teach women that marriage is the goal of their life and that it will save them and make them safe, we're predisposing them to the exact opposite of really, really risky environment. I mean, domestic violence is still the single biggest reason that police are called out. So it's not like this is rare and it's not like it only happens in certain suburbs. It happens everywhere. And coercive control in particular, because it is such an insidious and invisible way of sucking the life really out of another human being. I I have an image in my head when I think of the way Nick, he's the coercive controller. I have an image of it like a moth caught in a spider's web with filaments being wrapped and wrapped and wrapped around them. What I thought was very clever about your novel actually was that at the very beginning, Nick starts creating this web of deceit, of unsurety. The mother actually sides with him initially. She's like, actually, my daughter was strung out, can be hard work, and perhaps she has got something wrong with her. Her first reaction was actually to believe the web, so to speak, was to believe the, the headlines that Nick was telling. Absolutely. She's always had a difficult relationship with Ali. And when Nick starts to have a difficult relationship with her, she thinks, well, yes, I know exactly how you feel. Um, Me too. Absolutely. And Nick is very plausible. And he also sets himself out to charm Miriam. He does. Fiona, the older sister, says to her mother, I don't like him. Mm. Never have. Mm. What's not to like? He Mm. never looks at me. It's like Mm. I'm not there. Because he doesn't see Fiona as important. And one of the aspects uh, of narcissism, as I research it, is that they can be incredibly charming, but only to people that they think are of value to them, useful Mm. to them. Mm. And they basically don't even register the existence of those they see as not useful. So that is a clue to the fact that Miriam is being, in a way, caught up in the outer reaches of the same web of manipulation and deceit. This guy is enjoying himself. He is the puppet master. He is Mm. pulling their strings, getting them to react the way he wants them to. One of the other interesting elements of this novel is when I was reading it, I was thinking back to my early days in women's health. So this is only 25 years ago. And when we started to unpack the different types of abuse and assault that happened to women and we would talk about economic assault or we would talk about physical violence, we would talk about emotional violence, we would talk about financial violence. But this understanding that we've developed over the last quarter of a century of coercive control is still relatively new as a concept. It's a relatively new phrase that we're using in our society now. I mean, I don't know about you, Jane, but I imagine back when you were in your 20s, We didn't understand what coercive control was in the same way that we do now. Almost worse. Mm. I think it was society-wide. I actually see this book in some ways as a kind of metaphor Mm. for the history of women. When my mother was a young wife, the politest way to address her was as Mrs Andrew Mm. Caro. Mm. She didn't even have a separate existence Mm. in terms of her own name. Mm. Um, If you think about it, it goes on. Princess Diana was meant to be called Princess Charles because she's not royal. Princess Michael of Kent, her given name is not Michael. Mm. 
It's Marie Christine. So we have this tradition of women literally being absorbed into their husband, almost becoming no longer a separate individual, but a kind of either satellite or a limb. Yeah. And there was a, a, a society-wide grooming which basically said to little girls, one day your prince will come and rescue you and you will live happily ever after. And that was the only option they were given. And there was never any question that the prince would be the, their saviour. But do you want to be married to your saviour if you want to develop as a full independent individual person? So I would say that coercive control, the reason we couldn't see it is that old mess of metaphor about the fish swimming around and saying oh, the, something about the water and they go, what's water? You are completely surrounded by it. So we couldn't see it. We couldn't separate it out. The great paradox of coercive is that, in fact, it was working really well as we were businesses. Like that whole coercive control was actually happening everywhere. But slowly it seems to me that us women, us feminists, are starting to dig our way out this book, in some ways, where you go through these different generations, talks about that. But for you in your own life, I mean, when was that crossroads? When was that crossroads where it happened to you where you suddenly understood that you were part of something and then you decided to change that something? When did that happen? Can you remember? I was really lucky in that mm. my mother was a feminist called herself a feminist, was a member of the women's electoral lobby, was out and proud and basically said to her children, don't do what I did, don't do mm. what I did, don't work for a few years, get married and then have four kids. For God's sake, don't do that. Yes. It's boring, it's horrible, I hate it, I'm miserable. <laughs> you know, she loved my father, she loved her kids, but she hated the way she was kind of, she was a servant, she was our servant, she was his servant, she mm. had, didn't want to be servant she you know if my mother had been born a few decades later she would have been a professor of history I mean she's got the most brilliant academic mind and she's an extraordinary researcher she's still writing fabulous poems and giving lectures at the University of the Third Age in her 90s so you know this is a one hell of a smart lady and she was so straightforward about how her life was not what girls should aim for but I was surrounded by girls whose mothers said exactly the opposite mm. and in fact if they did because we were the generation as I talk about an accidental feminist who were offered the opportunity of second wave feminism of looking at life in a broader way than perhaps mm. any of the generations of women before us and we had the pill so mm. we could control our fertility better than any generation because that happened in 1960. Women before that were literally hog-tied by their inability to control their reproductive systems effectively. Condoms are not very effective. I'm living proof. My mother was that straightforward. Uh, and <laughs> so it was a revolutionary time because of technology and because of the baby boom and because brain work became more desirable in the workforce than brute strength. And so women were well-placed. We'd been outperforming men in education for about 100 years ever since they'd let us compete. So we were there and we took advantage of it. But a lot of my friends were actively undermined by their mothers, which is sad. Mm. I'm not saying the mothers were wicked, but the mothers had bought that women shouldn't aspire to these things. And I think they were trying to protect their daughters in a weird kind of a way. They felt that it would end in tears and that they would be rejected by men and that men were the only way you could stay safe and, you know, 
And in some ways they were right because a lot of those girls have ended up poverty-stricken in their old age. So their mothers weren't entirely without some nows. But I remember somebody telling me that when she got promoted to be the head of a primary principals association, she was voted to be president. Her mother said, oh, but you won't be able to do that, you know, which was devastating to the daughter. But I think I think the instinct of the mother was to protect, but also she'd been brought up to believe that she wasn't good enough. And there's a huge, awful moment if you suddenly come to the realisation that you bought this definition of yourself which constrained your life and it wasn't true and you didn't have to have lived that way because we only have one life. We have to believe that we made the best of it that we could. So I kind of get why those women of that generation often find it very hard to accept that they were being coercively controlled. They were. Your book, this this new novel of yours, I think speaks very clearly to this exact dilemma. Like your main character in some ways is completely victim to this patriarchal society. She believes that she's made, you know, strong choices, choices for herself. The book in some ways is a reckoning of this character, her own Mm. reckoning. It's been described by some reviewers as having a moral dilemma at its core. And I was sort of interested that some people said that because for me reading it, I wouldn't have thought there was a a moral dilemma at its core. I would have thought in some ways this was a review of our society. It was a review of the law. There's no moral dilemma here. We know the way out of it. Can you speak a little of that? Yeah, I mean, I suppose for Miriam there's a moral dilemma. She has to decide to do something that she knows is wrong and she says over and over, I've done the wrong thing, I've done a terrible wrong thing, but I did it for the right reasons. So she has made a decision between two appalling alternatives and I think that we don't like to recognise, you know, people say, oh, it was a lifestyle choice to have children or it was a lifestyle choice to not earn very much money. No, we're making choices between two really horrible alternatives. Uh, Stay at home and have no career and keep married to a guy who either bores you or hits you or coercively controls you or stifles you or puts you down or for whatever reason you are not happy with or leave that marriage, take the kids and risk living in poverty for the rest of your life. Great decision. Yay. What a great choice to make. I mean, wisely most women take the I'll leave him, but we don't offer them any help or support to do that and we really do condemn. I mean, I think the statistic is that 70% or something like that, two out of three or I'm bad with numbers, I can never get them quite right, but let's put it this way, um, vast majority of older single women living in private rental accommodation are living in poverty. Yeah, it's appalling. It's appalling. So we offer them these costly dilemmas where the choice on either side is crap. In your book, The the Mother, here here you are presenting this society as we know it, and in some ways you are doing a portrait of these exact issues that you've just asked, but you're also doing a portrait of these laws that have been created that stifle women's choices that are not equal. I mean, it seems to me that women 
actually do not have any equality when it comes to the law. Your novel not only is a portrait of a coercive relationship, of a violent relationship, but it goes further. In the second half, it, it goes a little further and it talks about how the law is not helping women in any shape or form. And I'm very interested when you talk about even the differences between a male prison and a female prison. Again, I'm trying not to give anything away, but it is surely just by the grace of God that we all women are not in jail, really. In some ways we are in a sort of jail. For a very long time women have had to find a life around the men in their lives. So they've Mm. squeezed into whatever space has been left. And if you just think about the way that women are constrained in public spaces, you know, women won't go out at night. I remember Nina Fennell telling me about an exercise she does with groups of men and women where she says to the men, here I'm going to put on the whiteboard all the things you do every day to keep yourself safe from sexual assault. And the men just all look at her and go, what? What are you talking about? I don't do anything. She says, okay, fine. Okay, ladies in the room, what do you do every day to keep yourself safe from sexual assault? And they fill the whiteboard Mm. with all the things from make sure I park under a streetlight, I ring my boyfriend to say when I'm coming home, I take my shoes off I'm wearing high heels so that I can run. You know, everybody has their strategies that they do. And the men are gobsmacked. But that is indicative of women living around the little bit of space that they're allowed to make for themselves. Mm -hmm. And living in fear, not because all men are terrible. Of course, most men aren't. But my sister put it beautifully once. She said, men are like dogs. Most of them are really nice, but some of them are vicious and you can't tell which is which just by looking at them. That's right. And then we have to constrain our behaviour at all times, because we never know which man is a vicious one. And in my book, of course, he comes into the family, the vicious one. Mm, and then right. it becomes extremely difficult to get away. And I don't I don't want to demonise the police, and I don't. I don't want to demonise the legal system, and I don't. I understand that these men, they have a sense of entitlement. They have a sense of ownership over their wife and children. And that is a very difficult thing for a legal system or a policing system to deal with until a crime is committed. Proactive policing is really hard. And I think we should criminalise coercive control. I think there are things we could certainly do a lot better than we're doing now. But I actually think that the solution is much harder than that. Mm. We have to change the way we bring up boys and girls. Mm. We have to break down the rigid gender stereotypes which basically say women are prey and men are predators. What do we call romance? The chase. Mm. Hello? Mm. It's it's really, it's not nice. (laughs) No. And the Mm. conquest, you know, no. Mm. And and we, we equate masculinity with domination. A man should be in charge, and if he's not, he's under the thumb. He's henpecked, all that crap. If he treats his wife like an equal, he's scorned by other men as letting the side down. We've got to stop this. That's where Mm. the rot is in that kind of attitude. Mm. Mm. It is. We're running out of time, Jane, but I want to just go very briefly back to your book. So here I am, a bookseller in one of the great independent bookshops in Australia, and I'm trying to find the mother. 
quite often this book is going to be put under crime. Do you agree with that or do you think it's more of a narrative book? You, how would you describe it? There is a crime. There are a number of it's crimes. A crime. It's a crime it, book. It is the story I needed to tell. I mean, uh, Deborah Oswald has written something which is obviously coming from the same sense of outrage and frustration as mine has. So maybe we're creating a new kind of genre, though it's interesting. My father, who is obviously very biased and fond of and pleased about his daughter writing a book and blah, 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 he did say, did you realise that you had uh, done the same thing as Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment, which is to make the criminal the hero? And I think that's kind of why this doesn't fit so comfortably into a lot of crime novels because there's a lot of ambivalence about right and wrong in this book. There's also a lot of certainty about right and wrong, but there are both. And I think that 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 is something that is true of human life, that we are very clear this is right, this is wrong, and then there's a whole lot of murky stuff where it's really hard to tell the difference. And I wanted to get that murkiness on the page. And that's often that it's easy to do a good guy, bad guy book. And look, I have a very clear bad guy in this book. But the good guys are not quite as clearly good. A narrative like this, a narrative fiction like this, is in the end, I think, much more powerful in some ways than writing about a sort of a political rampage in some ways because in the end we all remember the personal stories and it's the personal stories that actually get brought into dinner parties and get brought into barbecues and people start discussing them in book groups and it seems to me that a book like The Mother can actually make greater change in our patriarchal coercive society than perhaps a commentary on our political stance. What do you think? I agree with you. In fact, my major in English literature at Macquarie University a million years ago when I got that free education you were talking about was in the Victorian social novel, which is, of course, Dickens, George Eliot, Mrs Gaskell, Brontes, all of whom were actually writing about social issues while they were telling fabulous, great, terrific stories. Even Jane Austen is more socially alert, I think, than a lot of people give her credit for. And that's the power of those books, that they have actually a much wider universe than what the central stories might indicate. So I guess I've always been really interested in this idea of how personal story and fiction, where you can really take the story where it needs to go to illustrate the social issue that you're trying to get people to think about. It's always been something that I've been fascinated by. And I also hope that when you write a thriller in this area, you bring a new audience, you bring people that really would love to read a thriller and love a a good crime novel, but wouldn't necessarily go and read Jess Hill's absolutely fantastic and incredibly important and, my God, I'm glad she wrote it. It was such a good resource for this Mm. book. See what you made me do. They might not reject it because they think there's anything wrong with the book but simply go, oh, I'm not sure I want to read all about that awful stuff. So this in a way, I mean, I came come out of advertising and we were taught a long time ago that the best way to get people to pay attention to you is to seduce them. And that, I think, is what fiction does. It seduces the reader into absorbing ideas that they're probably not even conscious of at the time. That is something that I hope this book does. 
I checked out with people in the sector carefully that they felt it was appropriate to write a novel about this kind of thing, and they were really enthusiastic for just those reasons, I think. I also think fiction takes us out of our head, which is all about judgment, and puts us into our heart and our gut, which is about compassion, about experiencing vicariously what the characters experience. And that, I agree with you, changes things more fundamentally than merely thinking about something. Congratulations, Jane. I think The Mother is one of those powerful novels that will seduce, that will change narratives and will ensure that the audience is acknowledging what's happening in our society now and what they can do or should not do to to solve it. To you, someone who has been thinking about the way that women live since you're a young, young person, thank you for bringing this book to our attention. Thank you for bringing this issue to our minds and to our hearts. I encourage all of you out there to read a book like this, to consider why something like this has been written and, of course, to give Jane the greatest, warmest reception when she wins her Senate seat. (laughs) If you're in New South Wales, you can vote for me. Reason Australia, please do. Thank you. Um, Thank you, Christine. It's been absolutely lovely talking to you. And as always, the questions that I get asked make me think about the book in different ways. I do a lot of this stuff, like most writers, unconsciously rather than as a kind of intellectual exercise and I learn more about my book by talking to fabulous readers like you all the time so thank you that's very kind good luck and thank you so much for your time today you can stream previous episodes of the readings podcast at our website we also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books music film and tv you can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter readings monthly the Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callion. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Thank you.